Thanks so much for joining us here on Cranford Radio. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. Today we're going to be talking about the arts. To be more specific, opera. I'm joined by Harry Dvorak. He is an opera singer who lives in Cranford. Harry, welcome to Cranford Radio. Thank you very much. When you think of Cranford, opera is probably not one of the first things that comes to mind. Many, many years ago, I think it burned down in 1912, we had an opera house in Cranford at the corner of North Avenue and North Union Avenue. It's where the Cranford Trust Building is now located. But I'm not even sure they actually performed opera there. I think a lot of towns had opera houses back in the day. But you have sung at some of the great opera houses around the world, and we're going to talk about that. But why don't we start off by talking a little bit about you? As I mentioned, obviously, you are an opera singer, but I'm sure you did not start out as an opera singer. You probably started singing uh, more casual fare or more pop-type music, I'm imagining, when you were younger. Well, actually, my mother had us listen to Omnibus every Sunday night. And the first opera I ever heard was on you know, television. And didn't make a dent. Had no idea about opera. Actually was in the first opera I ever saw. Oh, wow. Yeah. And which one was that? Uh, La Clemenza di Tito at the Academy of Vocal Arts. I was working at a machine, making a lot of money. Uh, one morning, my father comes in with this letter from the Academy of Vocal Arts stating that that was the last day that they could hear me. So I took the day off, changed clothes, piled into the car, drove to Philadelphia, and sang for Vernon Hammond and Nicola Mascona at 4 o'clock that afternoon, and I was at the Academy of Vocal Arts. You go to audition for something like that. Obviously, you didn't just audition cold. I imagine you had been singing in high school with choirs and things of that sort before that? Yes, I was my high school soloist. I sang actually a solo at the 1964 World's Fair. Oh. Yep. And uh, I made district chorus my senior year uh, with Dr. George Lynn conducting. He was uh, chair of the Westminster Choral College at the time. And he chose me as one of his five core voices, and I was heavily recruited to go to Westminster. But I had athletic scholarships, and so it was not a consideration. So after some years of, well, I had brewed my knee out playing hockey, and that sort of ended the future in athletics other than bowling. But I started to sing local shows. I, I did uh, Hero in uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and I did a few other things. And started vo taking voice lessons, seriously. And uh, again, next thing I knew, I'm at the Academy of Vocal Arts. So take us from the Academy of Vocal Arts. How long were you studying there, and what happened after that? I was at the Academy three years. I made my formal debut in 1971 in Barcelona. That was the beginning. There were a lot of roles for young bass. I wasn't a very good singer, unfortunately. I lacked technique which is something that's really, really important, especially if you're an athlete. And it showed up as I knew I had the voice, but I wasn't singing the way I needed to sing. So a few years later, yet I worked a lot because there are a lot of roles for young bass. I worked a lot. Then finally found a voice teacher, Sam Sicarian, in New York, and he taught me to sing. And in 1979, I started to teach. And I realized three things. I was a good teacher. I liked teaching, and it was the best way to monitor my own singing. And I've been teaching ever since. I've had a combination of 30 years on the stage and 30 years teaching. So it's, it's been a really good balance. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the teaching aspect as we go on, but 
staying a, a bit more with the performing side for the time being, when you went to the Academy of Vocal Arts, was it something that you knew you were just going to be focusing on opera? Or you talked about in high school, you performed in a, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Was musical theater ever something that you were considering doing professionally? Well, I've done Emile de Beck in South Pacific, and I've done uh, Sweeney Todd, which is one of my favorite roles. Uh, someone asked me once why I chose to be a singer. You don't choose it. It chooses you. Uh, one of my assistants, when I taught at Carnegie Mellon University for two semesters as an interim lecturer of voice, she was a violinist, and she wanted to be a violinist from the time she was five years old. This art form, whatever art form you that comes into your life, it chooses you. It's not the other way around. It's a gift if you can use it. Mm-hmm. It can be a curse if you can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a certain amount of talent that draws you into the art form and it's not a good enough talent, that can really be difficult. But in my case, fortunately, I did have the talent and I had the right people to guide me in the right directions. And that is extremely important. With opera, obviously, there can be performances where you're simply standing on stage and performing. But there are more opportunities to actually involve acting with opera, much like musical theater, where you're not just singing, but you're having to act in the role that you are performing. You have to wear the costumes. You have to have the makeup, et cetera, et cetera. Did that part of it come naturally to you, the acting side of it? Yes, as a matter of fact, it did. I'm considered a pretty good actor. And in opera, that's really strange because you have to understand, when you're an opera singer, you have to be an operatic actor. I know that sounds sort of silly, but when you're, um, how do I say this? Many schools, for example, teach acting, and it's the modern method acting where you divest yourself of all intellect, bring your emotions to the surface, and you play the character off your emotions. The problem with that is, what's the first thing that gets affected when you get emotional? You're seeing your voice. So an opera singer can't do that. Plus, I have to know what the orchestra's doing. I have to know what a conductor's doing. I have to be in beat with a conductor's baton. I have to be in sync with my whoever I'm singing with on stage. And I have to be a linguist and a musician. So I've got about five disciplines that are going on at the same time that I have to be aware of. So I can't get emotionally involved in what I'm doing. But the advantage I have where the actor doesn't is I've got the composer to help. Think about it this way. Back when they had the uh, silent films, how did they make the mood? You know what was going on, right? I mean, to this day, when I swim in the ocean, I don't have to worry about it because the moment I hear boom, 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 I'm going to get out. <laughs> so the, mu- the music sets the mood for us. So literally, you don't have to be as good an actor, but if you go with the music, it will bring it out of you. I don't know if this is a stereotype, but when I picture opera singers, they have voices that project very well. When you're singing in some of these venues, Carnegie Hall, for example, which you've performed in many times, or the Met in New York City, how much of that is the acoustics 
of the venue versus amplification done electronically? Well, we don't use amplification in opera. There are no mics. So you're, there are 4,000 seats at the Metropolitan Opera. You're honking, so to speak, when you get out there. Now, not only do you have to project that voice out into an opera house, you have to project a beautiful sound, as beautiful a sound as you can make. Consequently, that's where technique comes in. That's why it's really, really important to uh, have a quality vocal technique, which is everything. It's the holy grail. It's the whole ball of wax. It's the whole enchilada. It's, it's vocal health. I tell my students, every note they sing with a quality technique enhances their voice. Every note they sing without a quality technique tears it down. As for acoustics, I made my debut at the Royal Opera at Covent Garden, 1965, as Scarpia, which is a baritone role, and I'm a bass. Because I technically sing well enough, I sing three, I've sung three repertoires for almost 29 years. Well, it was in repertoire. So the house was under renovation. So there were no rehearsals on stage, only performances. This is Covent Garden, the Royal Opera. <laughs> so I walked out, and the other venues were fine. Even our dress rehearsals were fine. I walked out to sing Un Talba Carwin Chiesa to the worst acoustic I've ever sung in, in my entire life. I mean, it was like singing into a pillow. It was dreadful. My soprano spent the whole time running around trying to find a place where she could hear herself. In vain, I might add. It made for some very interesting staging. As someone who uses their voice professionally, I can relate to that. When you have good acoustics, it really does make a difference in terms of how you feel about your voice and how you sound, even though you, in my case, I'm using a microphone most of the time as opposed to just projecting my voice. But that really is an important element. Carnegie Hall is renowned for having wonderful acoustics. What would you say is the most acoustically friendly venue that you've sung in? Probably the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, which they really don't use anymore. That was wonderful. Carnegie Hall is wonderful. Uh, even after they renovated it, it wasn't as good as it was back then, before the renovation, I should say. But it's still a wonderful venue. Most opera houses, by and large, have good acoustics. The New York City Opera, where I started many, you know, for many years, I sang at City Opera, was not a good acoustic house. It was supposed to be a ballet theater which it is now. I think it's the Henry Koch Theater now at Lincoln Center. But that was never a good acoustic. But it was good for a young singer to be prepared for that so that when I got into a reasonably good house, it was more fun to sing. (laughs) The other side of that, you're performing most of the time, but there are times where you're doing recordings and you're in a studio. What are the differences between performing on stage and performing in a studio, other than the obvious things of not having to be in a costume and things of that sort. One of the things that if you were trade in opera performances, and there's a huge, huge calling for it, studio performances are usually never used. Nobody wants them because you never know what you're getting. Because you can do a piece five or six times and go back and pick the right one. Well, in performance, well, that's tough to do. So you have to be, so it's the performances that are out on the stage that are the ones that are the most important and the ones you cherish the most. Uh, I've done a few recordings in in 
the studio, and it was sort of run-of-the-mill, if you know what I mean, because mm-hmm. you could get the very, very best of what you did, but it's not the same. It's not like going out there on that stage in front of an audience and giving the performance that you want of your life every night. I mean, that's what you try for. Mm-hmm. Very seldom do you get it, but sometimes, you know, once, maybe twice a year, you'll sing that performance that you're really, really pleased with. And this makes it worthwhile. Going back to the mid-1980s, those were some big moments for you. One of the things as I was researching for this interview was looking at a review from the New York Times in 1986. And they said, your bass voice was described as one of the finest to be heard in New York. What does it mean to have something like that? We sometimes hear about performers, oh, I don't, want, I don't pay any attention to reviews. But I would imagine you had to have at least been aware of that. And what is that feeling when you read something like that? In the New York Times. Well, <clears throat> let me put it this way. I got up one Saturday morning. It was a matinee. And I wasn't feeling well. It was Tosca. So and it was the first opening matinee I'd ever had in my life. City Opera. And again, I had a sore throat. So I called in and said I had to cancel. They went, oops. I said, what do you mean, oops? Evidently, my cover was in Kansas City. So I had to go out and sing a performance of Tosca. It was okay. It wasn't nearly what one of my best. I got the best review I've ever had in my life from. Now, three weeks later, I'm doing I Puritani, which is a bass role, and it's wonderful singing. The aria is beautiful, and it's easy. I have this fabulous duet with a baritone. We brought the house down both times, and I got slammed into times. <laughs> so... What you do is you keep the good ones, you throw away the bad ones, and you don't believe any of them. Going back again, we were saying the mid-1980s were a big time. 1987, you won the Richard Tucker Award. For those listeners who aren't familiar with that, tell us what the Richard Tucker Award is and what that meant to your career. It was important. I mean, it's one of the most important awards you can get because it was Richard Tucker. And I have a little vignette for you on that one. It was $20,000, plus the concert at Carnegie Hall with, you know, the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, about five years earlier, I was doing two operas, Pagliacci, which Richard was doing, and I was doing Simone in Gianni Schicchi, the two operas. Well, I drove up with friends and the accompanist. And we got there a little late. So we had to rush, rush in and we had the meeting, but it was raining. And it was Hartford, Connecticut. And the theater is across the commons from the, the Ritz where we were all staying. So I volunteered to drive you know, everyone over because I got the car. It was my aunt's car. It was towed. <laughs> it wasn't there. So I, you know, I finally found out where it was. And... Uh, Richard Tucker asked me, he says, hey, kid, he said, because I was just, you know, through that. He said, how much? I said, it's $100, Mr. Mr. Tucker. He reached into his pocket, took out a lot of bills, handed me $100, and says, go get your car. Okay. This is the kind of man he was. Didn't know me from that. So it's 1987 when Richard Tucker worked, and I'm asked to say something. And I said to Barry Tucker, his son, I said, well, Thank you for the 20000 but you could take the 100 out if you'd like. 
<laughs> I told the story. It was important, and it was a lot of fun because a lot of my friends sang with me. You know, by that time, I was forty, and I'd been singing now since nineteen seventy-one. So, I had a lot of friends in the opera, and it was a it was a wonderful evening. Well, I said we were going to revisit about the other side of what you do, which is teaching. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you teach somebody to sing? I guess they have to at least start with a base level of talent? Yes, you have to be born with a singing voice. You cannot be given a singing voice. The chords have to be the right length. They have to phonate. You have to have the right resonance in your sinus chambers to produce a tone. Uh, there are people with great voices who can't carry a tune. I mean, that was my brother, had the same tone. I have a friend who has a wonderful singing voice, but can't keep a rhythm. But you have to have the singing voice. No teacher can give you a singing voice. And I started to teach, as I said, because I found out I was good at it, and it was, a, it was the best way to monitor my own singing. The problem, unfortunately, especially today, is there are so many bad teachers. And for any parents who are listening to the podcast, teaching uh, before age 16, you're wasting your money. Please don't do that. Because not only is the young singer, boy or girl, not strong enough to sing correctly, they can actually damage their voices. So before 16, I don't recommend spending the money or or wasting the time. If your youngster wants to get into theater, start them on the piano. Start them in their musicianship. That's when you start. At 12, 13, when they get this urge to sing, whatever, start them at piano. By the time they're 16, then you can start lessons. Make sure the teacher is teaching them to prepare them for college. The other thing is, if I start at 16, by the time they're 17, we will know whether they should continue. I will know, parents will know, but more importantly, the young singer will know. And if they should continue, by 18, they'll have a technique that will get them at any school in the country. But as I said before, it's not an easy decision to tell a young person that their dreams won't come true. But by the same token, there are other things to do. I teach many young singers to be teachers. I teach them vocal pedagogy so that they're a good teacher. Because, again, the teaching, by and large, is really, really bad, unfortunately. For someone who's listening to this who maybe really isn't into opera but would like to be introduced to opera or maybe they want to introduce their child to opera as a viewer or a listener, what are some good entry points for someone who is not familiar with opera to start to understand? Obviously, there are some that are very complicated and perhaps would not be the best entry point, but there are others, I'm sure, that are a little more friendly in that direction. Well, you don't want to take your first child to the ring, you know. <laughs> That's what you probably want to avoid. My favorite opera is Zalome. That's, that's my all-time favorite opera. But that's not another one you want to introduce. You want to introduce young, young people to Puccini, Butterfly, Boheme. If you want to take them to an opera, go see Turandot. I sang Turandot here in New Jersey with Placido Domingo and Birgit Nielsen. May back in 73, I think. It was a wonderful performance. But mostly, again, opera is something that you enjoy older in life. It's not something that a lot of people can 
actually understand or enjoy. As I said, it's not to be understood. Opera is, is simply beautiful voices singing beautiful music. This is what you go for. Once you're comfortable with that, then you the costumes and the makeup and uh, orchestra and all that comes into play. And then it becomes more, I think Richard Gere in Pretty Woman said it the best. My doctor in New York, my pulmonary specialist, was, loved opera. And she said, it, when it was right, you were walking out and your feet didn't touch the ground. I've never seen people come off their seats in any other theater than opera. I mean, literally jump off their seats. It is exciting and it's fun, but it's not something you have to be afraid of. It's just beautiful music. But again, you want to choose the right piece. But any Puccini. We've been talking with Harry Dworczak. He is an opera singer who lives in Cranford. Harry, thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with me today. It was a pleasure.